0: We're now going to have our main reading, which is Revelation 6 to 7. And if you're using the Church Bibles, that's on page 10,
1: 1,031.
0: And it says this. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, And they were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed, as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's been rolled up, and every mountain... And Ireland was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Call into the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, who can stand? 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin Benjamin was sealed. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the thrones and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The shun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, in a moment, we're going to have a look at that passage. But before we do, let me just mention a couple of things. The first is uh, there'll be a question time at the end of the sermon. So as soon as we finish the sermon, I'll open it up and we'll get a chance to ask about three questions, two or three questions, depending on how long it takes me to answer them. So I want you to know that so you know it's coming up. So you can think of what questions you might like to ask. Another thing to mention is there's a sermon outline in your service sheet which you can use if you wish or ignore if it's of
1: no use to you. But on that, let's pray and ask God to help us.
0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable vision that you gave to your Apostle John. And we thank you that we have it here recorded for us. And that it gives us a chance to glimpse behind the curtain and see what your plan and providence is. We thank you in all this that we see that you're sovereign. And though things may happen and might, we might have the same anxiety that Daniel does, we need not worry because you are sovereign over all things and all things are done under your sovereignty and for your plan and purpose. Amen. As we mentioned earlier, Daniel 7 and Revelation 4-5 have quite a few similarities. In Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days is sat on a throne and a multitude serve him or worship him. In Revelation 4, there is one seated on a throne and he holds a scroll. And the 24 elders and four living creatures worship the one who's seated on the throne. In Daniel 7, one like a son of man came with the clouds to the ancients of days and having been presented before him, the ancients of days give the one like a son of
1: man dominion and glory and a kingdom. He is given full authority,
0: comprehensive both in capacity, there will be nothing outside of his rule and in length. His rule be eternal. In Revelation 5, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, who is also seen as a lamb standing as though it had been slain, takes the scroll from the one who sits on the throne and he's given the authority to open the seven seals of the scroll. And all the creatures and all the elders who are worshipping the one sat on the throne now turn and worship the Lamb along with the one who sits on the throne.
1: All authority is given to the Lamb, just as it was given in Daniel 7. It's the one who's like a son of man. Now in Daniel 7, we read of four great beasts. But
0: there's no mention of four beasts in Revelation 45. We'll get to that in a moment. What we do find in Daniel 7 and Revelation 5 is how the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Now it's worth being clear at this point that saints refer to any and every Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. In fact, you cannot be a Christian and not be a saint. Saint is not a unique category. In Revelation 5
1: to 10 we see how the lamb's people the saints shall reign on the earth. There are lots of similarities between Daniel 7 and
0: Revelation 4 to 5. But there are some differences. We've already mentioned that we're yet to find anything about the four beasts of Daniel 7
1: in Revelation But also there's the point of view of Daniel and John. When Daniel
0: sees his vision, it's a vision that he is to anticipate. What he has revealed to him hasn't taken place yet. This is something that he's looking ahead to. It will happen, but it will happen in the future. Whereas for John, his vision doesn't show him what's yet to happen. John's vision in Revelation 4-5 is something that's already taken place. At which point you may be thinking, what about the second half For chapter 4, verse 1? So notice in chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Surely this must mean that this is yet to happen for John as well. But then when we look at the details of what the Lamb has achieved, what we see is that this has already happened. So we see he's worthy to open the scroll. Why is he worthy to open the scroll? Because he was slain. His blood was spilt, meant he ransomed a people. And that's why they can now be part of God's kingdom. That's why they will rule. So the glory that's given to the Lamb is his because he died on the cross. He's been vindicated when he was raised from the dead, and when he was ascended to the Father's side, that's when he was awarded authority over the whole earth as he sat at his father's side. See, at this point in John's vision, he's seeing something that's already happened. And all of this provides the context
1: for what's about to take place
0: when the seven seals are opened.
1: Which finally gets us to today's passage. As we've already said, we found no
0: trace of the four beasts that were found in Daniel 7, in Revelation 4-5. In Daniel 7, the fourth beast is a kingdom, and this kingdom brings suffering upon the earth. It will be hostile towards God, and it shall wear out the saints of the Most High. It says in verse 25 of Daniel 7, and the saints of the Most High shall be given into his hand
1: for a time, times, and half a time. What we see in Revelation
0: 6one 1-7, the first four seals are opened, and each one brings a horse and his rider, and they bring devastation upon the earth. the role of the four horsemen appears to overlap with the activity of the fourth kingdom in Daniel 7. Well, what is maybe only implied in Daniel 7 is made explicit in Revelation 6. Who causes the four horsemen to bring their devastation?
1: Well, it's written on the scroll
0: of the one who sits on the throne. And it's set into motion when the lamb who was slain opens the seals.
1: This could be problematic. Unnecessary suffering caused by God and Jesus. But given the context we've outlined in Revelation 4-5... to
0: what we see is is that Jesus has comprehensive authority.
1: Let's take a moment to imagine what it would look like if Jesus didn't have full authority. That
0: would mean the suffering that occurred was caused by some other force, whatever that might be. It would mean it would be outside of God's control it would mean that God could neither use the suffering for the good of his people but nor would there be any reason to think he could bring that suffering to an end. But what we have in the four horsemen is suffering that is allowed for a time. In order to achieve God's purpose that will come to an end When Christ determines.
1: We'll see this a bit more as we continue further into today's passage. Now, as soon as
0: the fifth seal is open, we hear of an appeal from those who have been at the receiving end of the suffering caused by the four horsemen. The souls of those who have been martyred ask the sovereign Lord to vindicate them. What we see here is there's a purpose behind the suffering of God's people. The commentator Beale says this. Such sufferings are not meaningless, but are part of God's providential plan. That Christians should pattern their lives after the sacrificial model of Jesus. Seen from their heavenly perspective, such sufferings, ironically, advance the kingdom of God,
1: as was the case with Christ himself. Now what Beale says
0: is quite revealing. The pivotal point in God's plan in redemption is achieved through suffering. Our Lord, the one who's worthy to open the scroll, achieved this by laying down his life. It's through his sufferings that our sins are paid for. That's why we're able to become part of the kingdom. Now as followers of Christ, we follow in his steps. We too imitate him as we suffer the same hatred that he was exposed to we suffer as he did knowing that the day would come when he would be vindicated
1: as testified to the truth
0: so too we will be vindicated as having spoken the truth and so the souls are comforted with the knowledge as they are rewarded with a white robe
1: but told there's still more yet To join their number, at which point the sixth
0: soul seal is opened, and the judgment that the souls requested
1: begins. Now, Revelation seven spends
0: a little time focusing in on the saints. We might feel that the prospect of enduring such suffering is too much. There is a way to avoid the suffering. If we give up being a Christian, the suffering will go away. But to give up Christianity is to become hostile towards God and to miss out on the glory to come. And this is all what chapter 7 is about. Chapter 7 takes us back to before the first four seals have been opened. Notice four angels stand holding back the four winds of the earth. Just have a look at 7 verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our
1: God on their foreheads. four angels stand holding
0: back the four winds of the earth. And these four winds are going to bring harm to the earth. But the angels are preventing that because something must happen before. Now it makes most sense to identify the four winds of the earth who will bring suffering, as those four horsemen we
1: read of earlier. But before these four winds are released... The people of God are sealed.
0: The angel from the east brings blessing. He's the one who will seal the people. The seal won't keep them from suffering. Rather, the purpose of the seal is to provide them with the faith they
1: require to endure and pass the trials they experience.
0: Everyone on earth is going to be at the mercy of the four winds. Believer or unbeliever will experience the calamity that will come from the four horsemen. But the protection the seal provides is spiritual. The godly are purified as they face trials as God's servants, while the ungodly harden their hearts
1: further in response to God. Suffering is part of the world that we live in. And many use that as a proof that
0: God doesn't exist. A God that was all-powerful would end all suffering. When unbelievers suffer, rarely does it cause them to call out to God for mercy. Rather, it causes them to further harden their hearts against God. And yet God's kingdom is built upon his suffering servant
1: who willingly laid down his life and did so after testifying to his father, so too those that follow will suffer.
0: And this morning we've seen a little of what's happening as we take a glimpse of the eternal perspective. The suffering we're exposed to is under the authority of the one who's been given authority over the whole earth. And he's using it to bring about his purpose, which also means he has the authority to end the calamity that's brought about by those who sit under his authority. And we experience this knowing that he suffered first, and that we can look forward to the day when we will be vindicated as he was.
1: That will be when the multitudes serve him. That will be when we will be before the throne of God.
0: And that will be when he who sits on the throne will shelter them or
1: us with his presence. Let's pray.
0: Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we um, have been brought into your kingdom by the suffering of your son. And we pray, Lord, that we would think it not too small a task to continue on as we testify to him and experience some of the suffering that he went through for our sakes. We pray, Lord, that as we persevere and endure through this, we know that we do this knowing that you've sealed us with the faith that will help us to endure and that we do so anticipating the glory that will come,
1: that will overshadow the suffering that we experience now. Amen.
0: Well, we've covered quite a lot, and I did promise you the opportunity to ask questions or make
1: comments in light of what we've been thinking about this morning. So, any questions, comments, or thoughts? Yes. Very good and
0: interesting question. Okay, so let me just repeat that question for the recording. Why do we think suffering is used to further God's kingdom? I think probably the best way to answer this question is to go back to an, a slightly different question that's related, which is a question of why does God put the tree in the garden? So, the reason why I go to that question is, if you think about it, if God had never put the tree in the garden, there'd never be a fall. There's never a fall. There'd never be any suffering. Now, first of all, I guess one question is, this all becomes quite hypothetical. You know, Could God have achieved what he's done without putting the tree there or without bringing about suffering? I, I, I don't know. He didn't do it that way. This, this is the way he's done it. But what he does achieve through it is a revelation of who he is, that it would be hard to imagine how he would do otherwise. So if we imagine for a moment, if we just take Adam, what did Adam know about God? Well, you know, you might say, well, he walked in the garden with him for a short period of time at least, or maybe it was a long period of time, we don't know. And he knew that he shouldn't eat from the tree, the knowledge of and evil. He knew that God created the earth and that it was good. And, that, you know, he knew, he knew a little bit. But then you take that and you compare that to what Moses knew about God or Moses was introduced
1: to God as as Yahweh uh, before the Exodus. But also Moses experienced the Exodus
0: where God's people were slaves and God rose up and brought about uh, many different plagues where he distinguished between the Egyptians and the Israelites. He showed his power when he turned the Nile to blood and all the different plagues as well. And when he parted the Red Sea and brought the people out. So there we see there's something that Moses appreciates about God that Adam could never have known because God's revelation is furthered on. And you could do the same with David and others. But then you get to, interestingly, you get to the disciples. Let's take the disciples at the point where they're living, walking with Jesus and living with him. What did they know about God? Well, they knew everything that Moses knew because they could read about that. They knew everything that David knew. They knew there'd be a promised Messiah because that had been written. And they knew that Jesus could do remarkable things, that when he spoke, creation obeyed and that he was the creator. But there was also a lot of confusion amongst the disciples. They didn't quite understand him. There were times when he would ask them questions and then they didn't really know, think, what was going on. And he kept pointing them to the fact that actually they wouldn't understand them. Not until he'd died, and raised from the dead, and ascended. And that's where, and it's quite helpful, you can see a complete difference between Peter and Peter, before the cross, and in Acts two, when he stands before the people and explains everything that's taken place, they couldn't understand who Jesus was until he died, rose again, and ascended to the Father's side. Just one thing I've missed out. I shouldn't have missed out. But it was the disciples who learned that Jesus was the Son and therefore he had a father, he, he and therefore God was father, so you've got this eternal relationship as well. And so what we're beginning to see here is, is that what God is able to do is reveal himself through the suffering that takes place, re- reveal his might, his, reveal his redemptive acts, reveal the way he keeps his people, and that's what we're seeing now. As we reflect on Christ's sufferings for us, we know something the disciples never knew until afterwards. We live in the highlights of redemptive history because it's all completed and finished. And now as we look forward to and endure the suffering that as we relate to him we can endure and our faith can be tested and purified and secured for the new heavens and the new earth whom we'll be with him. So, I mean, that's a bit of a a short, well not a short answer but that's a, an introduction to the question but I think it all comes about revelation, About revelation, how does God reveal in himself and he has this remarkable way of revealing himself through the suffering that his servants and
1: yeah people experience is that okay? Uh, are there any other questions? yes Susie
0: Yes, I think you're pretty much there. Um, so let me repeat the question. So what are we to do with the tribulation that's spoken of in verse, if chapter 7, verse 14? So I said to him, so you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Is that tribulation uh, a specific, unique part of the suffering, or is that the suffering in general? So... One of the things that I found interesting as I was reading the commentary this week is that, and I think this makes perfect sense, and I don't know why I didn't think of it myself, but Romans 4 and 5 um, all takes place after the death, resurrection, and then during the ascension. So this, this is something that John's John's seeing but has already happened. So you can imagine jesus ascends to the father and when he ascends to the father that's when he takes the scroll and that's when he is in a position you know he's praised because he's now given the authority to open the scroll you know, which matches up with what we see later on in matthew 28 when he says i've been given all authority then he ascends to the father and he's given the authority to open the scroll and so when we start reading revelation 6 we can imagine that after he's ascended to the Father, the scrolls begin to get opened, or sorry, the seals begin to get opened, and this is when the suffering begins. So I think it makes most sense to take the tribulation as just this time period between his ascension and the disciples going out and testifying and witnessing, and that hostile response to the testimony, same way that the Son experienced and that tribulation will continue on until Christ returns at the end. And that is helpful as well because there are all sorts of different you know you, you, when you get to the fifth seal and you look here about the souls and it talks about those who are martyred the question becomes well who's going to get a white robe? Is it only the people who are martyred? Who is going to be added to the number? Uh, is it only those who are killed? Who is who are being sealed, is it only the martyrs? Well, that's problematic, really. It can't just be only the martyrs who are being sealed. It needs to be all the Christians who are being sealed, all the saints. And so, I think in verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Once again, it makes most sense for that to be, well, all Christians are coming out of the Tribulation because they've all washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, again, we want. I don't think the Bible has these multiple categories of, you know, there's the saints, there's the Christians, there's the uh, spiritually, you know, people who've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, people who've not been baptized with the Holy Spirit. There aren't these different categories. There are Christians, those who've been saved by the blood of Christ and have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and have experienced
1: the suffering of the tribulation and are sealed. And in the new house Time for one more you might be thinking, "Is it hot today?" I feel hot. But... Yes, Ricky. Oh, because you've got Joseph
0: and Manasseh but you wouldn't ex- but you've got no, you're missing an E-frame aren't you and Dan no Dan okay yeah so I guess the question then just to summarize is what do we do with the 144 thousand so one of the things when it comes to revelation is that the numbers are used symbolically So, just to to come up with an alternative answer, some people think that when you come to the 144,000, they're Israel, and then when you come to the great multitude, that's the Gentiles. But I think what makes more sense is that, because then again, you've got the same problem, because the 144,000 are sealed, but it never mentions that the multitude in verse 9 are sealed. So now you've got two Again, two groups of people, some that are sealed, some that aren't sealed. And actually, then you've got to ask the question, are the 144,000 washed in the robes and made white in the blood of the Lamb? It all just gets too confusing. But if we use the number symbolically, the people of God are, you know, how do to describe the people of God, the people of Israel. The people of Israel are made up of 12 tribes. Twelve tribes of Israel—that's the complete people of God. At least in the Old Testament, that was the case. So, if you later on in the Bible want to talk symbolically about the complete people of God, it will be natural to use talk about, oh, the twelve tribes, the tribes of Israel. That is the—they're the people of God. Twelve tribes, therefore, twelve is complete. And then you—how many people are going to be in each of the tribe? Well, twelve, because twelve is the uh, complete number, so no one's missing. Obviously. And then I guess you've got to throw in a 1,000 because 12 people aren't that many people. So you end up with, you know, I think there is some more symbolism to a 1,000, but, but you end up then with 12,000, 12,000 times 12, which is 144,000. So that then symbolically means no one has been missed out. God has saved all his people. Then when you get the great, the, to the great multitude, it's looking at the same people, but just from a different perspective. So now, um, it's looking at all of God's people, and it's just talking about how, what they do and how they'll be saved. Um, So, why they chose the tribes they did and missed out other tribes, I think the only significance is, is they wanted 12 tribes, because 12 is complete. Is that okay? There's more that can be said. Time is escaping us, but Adrian knows a little bit more about this sort of stuff than me, because he's the uh, Trinity Revelation expert. Okay, let's stop there, and we are going to, in a moment, celebrate the Lord's Supper.
1: But before we do, we're going to stand to sing the Lord's My Shepherd.